sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a fight for workers' rights, uh, uh, considering UPS up in New York City. Also going to be talking about Israel's latest attack on Gaza. And we're going to be broadcasting a special Black August throwback, as we'll be playing a 2020 interview that we did with recently deceased uh, former Black Panther and political prisoner Albert Woodfox. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, We'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, amid all of the reporting of the deadly attack on Gaza City by Israel that resulted in the death of a five-year-old Palestinian girl, few reported that the attacks on Gaza this time were a preemptive act of self-defense, as Israel calls it, allegedly against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. Now, you'd have to read Al Jazeera to know that and find out that they also reported that the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territories, Francesca Albanez said Israel's air attacks on the Gaza Strip, quote, not only are illegal, but are irresponsible. The situation in Gaza is on the verge of a humanitarian crisis, she said. The only way to secure the wellness of the Palestinians wherever they are is to lift the siege and allow aid to enter. Albanez also blasted the United States for saying that it believed Israel had the right to defend itself. She said Israel cannot claim that it's defending itself in this conflict. And she's right. At least 31 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza and 260 since Friday. No serious casualties had been reported in Israel, on the Israeli side, as of Sunday. So what is Israel defending itself from, particularly since they admit that this latest attack on the occupied territory of Gaza was preemptive, in other words, not in response to any action committed against them? Albanez raised an important point, saying that, quote, protection is something I demanded in Palestine. And that's not me alone. It is necessary to protect civilian lives. Israel cannot be defending itself from civilians since 1967. That's what they've been claiming since 1967, though. And why can't Palestinians ever have the right to say that they're defending themselves from Israel's land theft, ethnic cleansing, violence and murder? Well, because if anyone allowed Palestinians the right to defend themselves, then they would have to admit that the occupation of Palestine by Zionist forces is exactly that, an occupation. And Israel's claims on that land would erode. In fact, an independent commission of inquiry set up by the U.N. Human Rights Council in May 2021 said that Israel must do more than just end the occupation of land that Palestinian leaders want for a future state. It added that action must be taken to ensure the equal enjoyment of human rights for Palestinians. But the report cited evidence that Israel had, quote, no intention of ending the occupation, end quote, but was instead pursuing complete control of the territories taken in 1967. The commission found the Israeli government to have been acting to alter the demography 
through the maintenance of a repressive environment for Palestinians and a favorable environment for Israeli settlers. In layman's terms, establishing an apartheid system to repress Palestinians, committing systemic ethnic cleansing to steal their homes and land in order to give it to Israeli settlers. For Israel and its collaborators in this ongoing crime against humanity, the United States and the UK, the preemptive strike on Gaza was justified because the target was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Ibrahim Freyhat from the Doha Institute told Al Jazeera that, quote, Islamic Jihad opposes the peace process opposes negotiations with Israel and adopts an armed struggle against the Israeli occupation like Hamas. And they are very close with Iran. Because of the links to Iran, we're seeing one of the causes of Israel's attack. In fact, the head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, Major General Hossein Salami, said on Saturday, Quote, we are with you on this path until the end and let Palestine and the Palestinians know they are not alone, adding that Israel will pay another heavy price for the recent crime. And with that, the reason behind the assault on Gaza is exposed. Israel is picking a fight with Iran. The U.S. and its allies are, of course, backing them, even if Palestinian children die in the process of Israel repeatedly claiming that it has a right to defend itself from civilians they are brutally oppressing, who are merely defending their right to live and live in their own land. Israel wouldn't have to worry about it being attacked if they stopped stealing the Palestinians' land and homes, if they ended the occupation of Gaza, if they stopped attacking worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, if they stopped allowing settlers to assault, kill, and steal the land and homes of Palestinian people, if they stopped building illegal settlements on stolen Palestinian land, if they stopped shelling Gaza and killing Palestinian children. The special rapporteur, who is an independent expert responsible for monitoring human rights violations in the occupied Palestinian territories and referring them to the UN, called on the international body to ascertain whether international law had been breached in Gaza and ensure accountability. I don't think we need the UN to make that determination. We know it's happening. What needs to happen is for the United Nations to stop being pushed around by the United States and actually defend the rights of the Palestinian people to defend themselves from Israel. At the Conservative Political Action Conference this week in Dallas, yes, they actually had one, a bizarro exhibit featured an actor pretending to be a January 6th rioter sobbing in a jail cell. At this CPAC booth, apparently, attendees could put on a headset that played testimony from the people arrested for participating in January 6th, while the guy in the orange jumpsuit and the MAGA cap sat in the jail cell and cried the whole time. Oddly, the exhibit is the brainchild of Brandon Straker, a conservative influencer and January 6th defendant who provided significant information to the FBI as part of a plea deal that kept him out of jail and presumably landed others in jail. I don't know what the point of the exhibit is. I just thought it was really funny and odd and a weird moment in this political moment in this country, but I doubt it will do anything to change the minds of the MAGA crowd loyal 
appeal to Donald Trump. It's not going to move the GOP now firmly under Trump's influence out of his shadow either. I really don't know what the exhibit is supposed to be for, and neither did anyone at CPAC, apparently. What I do know is that if Biden runs in 2024, even the actor crying in the jail cell could probably beat him. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Amir Kafaji, an award-winning journalist based out of New York City, who you can follow on Twitter at Amir Kafaji 91 Amir, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Amir. And you recently published a piece uh, with DocumentedNY.com detailing the struggles of UPS warehouse workers in New York who have endured just a, a sweltering heat day in and day out with basically no relief coming from the management. And you focused on the Foster Avenue uh, uh, warehouse in Canarsie, Brooklyn, a warehouse that employs 590. 96 warehouse workers where, and I was pretty struck by this, uh, 47 uh, uh, are full-time, but 482 are part-time, with many of the employees being black or Latin immigrants. Um, And, you know, they have uh, no air conditioning on the shop floor. I mean, uh, people are lifting heavy things basically uh, all day, every day. And it's just, excuse me, it's just uh, really not conditions that are fit, honestly, for human beings to operate in. But what did you find? in your uh, investigations into the conditions at this UPS warehouse, Samir, and what kind of effect has it been having on the workers? Well, you know, the situation there is really, it's dire for these workers. They're they're working in conditions well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, There's no air conditioning at all to be found. Many find it that they can only get air conditioning when they go and sneak off to the bathroom. Management tells them that they could take breaks when needed in order to manage the heat. But whenever they do take those breaks and go to the restroom or go get a drink of water, they're often um, chastised by the management for saying that they're taking too many breaks and they're not being as productive. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hot atmosphere. The warehouse is made out of metal, right? It's mostly, it looks like a shipping container. Um it's like this giant box, and it radiates heat. There's boxes all over the place. There's trucks coming in and out with exhaust fumes all over the place. Um, the warehouse also, on top of being extremely hot uh, in the summer, it's extremely cold in the winter. It has no insulation. Um, workers are forced to work in, in, in uh, the freezing cold with their jackets on, constantly moving boxes on, uh, on the assembly line um, and sorting through the boxes. The, the warehouse is also incredibly dusty, right? There are some fans, but those fans are covered in dirt and dust. Workers often, when they leave the warehouse and go home at night, they're just covered in dust, right? They're inhaling all this dust. Um, they find the area also, it, the warehouse is also unsafe in, in, um, in the way that there's a lot of things that could stick, stick out and stick 
and stab them and, and cut them while they're working. Um, they're, they often find piles of garbage piled up all over the place. Uh, and that's a fire hazard at any moment. Some spark could fly and they could have a situation like the triangle shirtwaist, shirt, uh, shirtwaist factory situation. I mean, these workers could, could really either get hurt or die if, if a fire were to happen. Um, they find exits blocked oftentimes. Um, there's a bunch of safety issues on the conveyor belt. So they got these big conveyor belts. And um, oftentimes, boxes, they'll get they get jammed on the conveyor belt, and workers are forced to try to unclog the jam and kick the boxes away. Um, the protocol states that they're supposed to turn the conveyor belt off and then remove the jam. But often, to keep the productivity going, management says just kick the box out of the way or push it with their hands out of the way while the conveyor belt is running. And workers tell me that they've seen other workers have situations where their hands were crushed or they got seriously injured because they were pushing the boxes uh, out of, they were pushing the jam out of the conveyor belt while the conveyor belt was moving. So there's a myriad of different safety concerns. And the one pressing right now is the heat because it's the summer and we're going through a huge heat wave across the country right now, especially in New York City. And these workers are just, it's, they're, they're suffering and it's not safe at any temperature. Yeah, you know, and Amir, we're not talking about a company that doesn't have resources. We're not talking about a small mom and pop shop here. We're talking about the United Parcel Service that literally has hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that they're supposed to allocate, or at least they do on paper, for safety measures that they're supposed to implement. Exactly how much money does UPS claim they uh, allocate to implement safety measures, and why aren't they actually doing that? Well, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me of how much money they actually claim to, to be spending on the safety measure, but they, they do claim that they're doing everything that they can to make the warehouses safe. And that's just not true when you hear workers talk uh, on the ground. Workers say that, for example, when it comes to the heat, um, UPS says that they have ice machines and they have water fountains and they they encourage workers to take any time they need to cool down and, and be safe. And workers say, and not just at the Foster Avenue warehouse, but workers across the country say that these ice machines are barely working if, if they exist at all. Uh, water fountains are barely working if they exist at all. Management constantly harasses them for taking as many breaks as they need. Um, so the situation is not as safe as it sounds. Um, so it's, it, there's also, I've also heard that management says they provide watermelon and bananas and different fruits to hydrate the workers. And the workers said they haven't seen any of that. Meanwhile, the offices where management are, are completely air conditioned and cool and climate controlled. And the workers at the warehouse, they, they have to work in these sweltering conditions. And the, you know, what's shocking to me is why isn't it, why do the workers not have air conditioning in the first place? Um, one of the, uh, the Teamsters president of the local Teamsters president of Brooklyn, he made a good point. He said, if you go into any Lowe's or Home Depot, these warehouses are sometimes twice the size as a Foster Avenue location, for example, and they're completely climate controlled and air conditioned. So there's really no excuse not to have at least air conditioning for these workers. But it, it seems like UPS is uh, at a race to the bottom. They put profits above 
the health of their workers. The fact that many of these workers are completely um, part-time and not full-time employees tells you that the state of the situation at the UPS, where they're relying completely on part-time workers um, and not making, uh, they're not making workers full-time and they don't, leading to the fact that UPS cannot be, uh, uh, you can't make a living as being a UPS worker. You have to have one or two other jobs on the side in order to be able to support your family. So one worker I spoke to worked there for nine years and is still a part-time worker. That's why UPS has a shortage of trying to find people to work for them because it's worth getting around that that company is not that it's not the nice, wonderful place that they like to make it seem. And workers figure, you know what? If I'm going to be only making $15, $16, $17 an hour and be working in this tinderbox, essentially, and not getting paid adequately, I could just end up getting a job somewhere else. Yeah, and we're talking about New York City, you know, a very uh, uh, expensive place to live. And when I saw that huge disparity uh, between part-time and full-time employees, I knew that that had to be reflective of these conditions as well. And we were talking earlier about uh, the the money and resources that UPS supposedly puts towards uh, worker safety. Um, uh, In the piece, you quoted Sarah uh, Shaitan, media relations and global communication supervisor at UPS, who claimed that the company invests more than $260 million a year to implement uh, uh, safety programs, including uh, hot weather conditions. Well, I mean, according from what you heard directly from the people who work in those warehouses every day, Amir, I mean, that that check must still be in the mail because it, it just uh, doesn't reflect what is actually happening. And it, it goes beyond uh, just the conditions inside the warehouse. I mean, there's also problems with um, the, the the drivers and the UPS trucks that are driven as those are also not uh, 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 ventilated and they don't have air conditioning. Matter of fact, drivers have uh, uh, passed out and even died uh, because of these conditions. And uh, we're not talking about a company that can't afford uh, to actually address these issues if they wanted to. Uh, within the piece, you talked to a local 804 president, uh, Vinnie Perone, who said that UPS is, you know, the largest delivery company in the country, which of course is true. It employs over 450,000 workers with an annual revenue of $97.2 billion with $12.8 billion in profits. And so uh, UPS has obviously uh, been investing a lot in terms of uh, automation and increasing surveillance on the workers, while at the same time not investing at all in making sure that those uh, uh, workers are actually safe. And so here we have this company that is raking in super profits, but completely ignoring, uh, frankly, the humanity of the people that help it run. You know what I mean? And so it's just like you were mentioned earlier about, um, you know, the conveyor belt issue. And you were talking to one worker who uh, saw that uh, workers were getting injured by doing this uh, as the conveyor belt was running, which is not what they're supposed to do. And because 
this worker refused to put themselves at risk for injury, uh, he was written up for insubordination. And so workers are being put in situations where they can either hurt themselves in these already harmful conditions or threatening losing their job. And so, I mean, it really is just, uh, uh, frankly, to me, criminal what UPS is uh, uh, doing here, uh, Amir. And I'm just kind of wondering, uh, what, what has the pushback looked like from the workers uh, uh, on this in terms of trying to get these issues addressed? Well, workers are organizing across the country right now. Um, they're in a huge uh, contract uh, negotiations for their 20. I, I, from what I understand, the UPS contract is up by 2023. Um, they have a master contract agreement across the country. The Teamsters represents UPS workers across the country. And I, one of their central issues is workplace safety. Um, there is a lot of talk and word on the ground that UPS may be preparing to go on strike um, come 20, next year, 2023. Um, it, because it just, uh, this company seems, over the years, this company has seemed to have gotten worse and worse and worse. Uh, you got to remember, UPS's main competitor right now is FedEx and Amazon, and these and both FedEx and Amazon are not union shops, right? So UPS is the only of these of the only uh, parcel service of the three of them that are fully unionized. Um, yet, in order to to compete, UPS has been slashing across slashing uh, hours. Make, making most workers uh, part-time workers, uh, as you could, they're the worst when it comes to OSHA violations and safety violations. Um, they're worse than FedEx and DHL. Um, they, they, I remember reading one study. They said that uh, UPS has had the most OSHA violations when it came to blocking fire exits. Um, so the U, UPS has completely negated safety. Um, they put profits over safety, profits over the workers, and the workers are not going to have it. It's out from what everything that I'm hearing, workers are preparing to continue fighting for the rest of the year to fight for air conditioning within and safety within the trucks and within the warehouses. And I think we're going to we're preparing to see one of the largest um, possibly labor um, conflicts go down within the next year or two. So it's really exciting in terms of what could happen, the possibilities of change at UPS, because the workers are really militant and they're really um, fed up and they're just not going to take it anymore. Yeah, definitely. And it goes beyond uh, UPS even, because back in June, you reported about uh, at the end of New York's legislative sessions, uh, there were several uh, pro-worker bills that were basically just left behind. And so the overall picture for workers in New York City uh, just seems like it's not good, uh, to say the very least, at this point, as it seems at every turn that they are facing roadblocks to what should be their uh, uh, basic rights. And as such, it seems that this kind of labor struggle that you're talking about, Amir, uh, is definitely necessary. But the last thing I wanted to note, and maybe this is an aside, but we're talking about the heat conditions inside these warehouses. I mean, to me, this is just one example of many that I'm sure will come about how climate change will continue to uh, impact workers. And uh, it's a situation where uh, uh, workers' rights are already uh, not generally uh, respected that much, but even as uh, conditions intensify and the exploitation deepens, the kind of struggle uh, around labor that we're talking about here, Kamir, will, I think, uh, be pretty crucial. 
Oh, 100%. You know, climate change. Austin, uh, what's getting left out of the conversation is the labor side of climate change, right? Um, labor workers are, are being are going to be forced as, as the years go on and we see more of the extreme climate fluctuations that we're seeing across the country go down right now. And workers are going to bear the brunt of it. Either uh, working class communities are going to be the ones suffering from uh, sea level rise and being a displacement, or they're going to be the ones that are going to be suffering when it comes down to either fighting forest fires in California and, and in the Southwest, or working conditions like a UPS warehouse where the conditions are just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And, and, Companies are going to continue to put their their pocketbooks over the workers uh, the worker safety. So it's 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 a very interesting, to say the least, uh, aspect of climate change that's really going underreported. And I think it's really I think that's really um, I, I hope to cover this 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 story as it continues to grow and as as we hear more of these situations happen with climate change. And I think it's really um, imperative that people like you keep reporting on it and keep making those connections because I don't think most people are. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Amir, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about Israel's most recent assault on Gaza. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, an investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you again, Sean. Absolutely. And Asa, uh, just last night on Sunday night, there was a ceasefire uh, agreement that was uh, uh, chosen between Israel and the Islamic Jihad Palestinian resistance group um, that took place following three days of a bombing campaign from Israel uh, against Gaza. Now, uh, the Gaza Health Ministry said that 44 Palestinians had been killed in the territory. This includes 15 children with more than 300 Palestinians being injured, all told, with almost a third of them being children. I mean, uh, children just seem particularly impacted by this. And uh, I believe this is uh, one of the most uh, considerable uh, acts of aggression from Israel that we've seen since the 11 day assault last year, if memory serves. Uh, according to Al Haq, a Palestinian human rights group, Israel, quote, indiscriminately targeted civilians and non military structures, which constitutes a grave breach of international humanitarian law and may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. And so we saw some frightening uh, images and video online uh, of some of this bombing as it was taking place. And so to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand what is at the root of this latest attack uh, from Israel and how did things unfold from there? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that, as always, Israel started it. Israel began 
on Friday by carrying out an unprovoked attack on the Gaza Strip, bombing civilian areas. I mean, the entirety of the Gaza Strip is a civilian area because it's one of the most densely populated territories in the entire world. There are more than two million people now living in the Gaza Strip, you know, about around half of them are children. And so any kind of mass attack involving artillery or aerial bombing, as it was in this case, is going to inevitably result in Palestinian civilian casualties, regardless of whether or not Israel it was targeting Palestinian resistance fighters, as it claims it was in this case. Um, and we see that was only that's was only partially true. It, yes, there were Palestinian resistance fighters who died as a result of these attacks, um, but there was also children, as you stated, around 50 children. Um, you know, and the, the final death toll may rise, I suppose, as you know, um, information comes in from Gaza of this um, terrible latest assault. Um, and I think it's, in my view, what lies at the root of this is simply that there is a new Israeli prime minister, Yair Lapid, um, who was part of the coalition government. He was the uh, he was due to be the second prime minister, and the coalition government collapsed not long ago, and there are now new elections to be held in the autumn in the fall. And the uh, Yale Lapid, unusually for Israeli politicians, does not have so much of a career as a professional uh, military person. You know, he comes from. Uh, he he was a television host. He was a television anchor, a TV news journalist, um, and uh, as was his father before him. So you know he in a, such a martial society as Israel, which is a settler colonial society and has um, a big, uh, obligatory military service built into its structures. Um, for politicians, it's important that they are, have some sort of military credentials. And, you know, unfortunately, to win elections in Israel, you have to look like you're willing to kill Palestinians because that is the price of having a, uh, a Jewish supremacist state in Palestine, in any part of Palestine. Um, you're going to have to be willing to kill the indigenous people. That's the brutal reality that, lines behi that lies behind all these kind of... Um, uh, nonsense that's spouted about the so-called Jewish and democratic state. That's the reality. And um, I think the reason that we've seen that these attacks have been so in particularly indiscriminate and why the attack was so blatantly unprovoked, you know, there was no pretense even of responding to Palestinian resistance um, shelling from the Gaza Strip, of rockets from the Gaza Strip. It was just a completely um, provoke surprise attack on the Gaza Strip. Um, I, I think a big part of the reason for that was a, you can understand it if you would have read a report in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz in May, where Israeli military intelligence put it out that it's, it made let it be known that it was essentially running out of targets in the Gaza Strip, that um, they said that 
the Gaza target bank has become, quote, very problematic. And so what that meant was that their list of places that they would bomb in any forthcoming war was growing very thin. There was no... And I think part of this is down... You know, we shouldn't downplay the role of the resistance, the Palestinian resistance in this. I mean, I, th I do think a large part of this is down to the increasing sophistication of the Palestinian resistance that um, the Palestinian uh, intelligence apparatus, the, the, the uh, you know, that out, roots out collaborators and information leaks and so forth has become more sophisticated over the years. And also that, you know, the Palestinian resistance by its very nature is a guerrilla force, right? So it's always constantly moving around. Um, it has a series of underground tunnels, you know, to defend the people of the Gaza Strip uh, militarily. And so, therefore, it, it doesn't have, it has very few known fixed military targets. So that's one reason. Second reason, as I sta stated, is the resistance's counterintelligence operations, rooting out collaborators and, and, um, and so forth. Um, but I think another reason is just simply the sheer brutality of the Israeli military, of every subsequent Israeli war um, is just so brutal. They bomb everything in sight. They bomb anything. Like in the last war last year in May, we saw them just openly bomb uh, an entire, uh, a well-known building which housed local lo local offices of international media organizations, including Al Jazeera and Reuters and the rest. Um, they just openly, in front of the entire world's press, destroyed this building, and there's been absolutely no, you know, they bombed it to the ground, there's been no accountability for this. And so, you know, the Israelis have run out of things to bomb in the Gaza Strip. You know, they, they, they come out with these weak claims about, oh, it was being used as a Hamas um, office, which, you know, was completely untrue, and there was no basis to what they were saying, but it was still entertained by, unfortunately, by some media in the West. Um, and so, you know, this, I, I think the brutality of this latest assault um, is due to this, this, what they were saying in May earlier this year, they're running out of targets in the Gaza Strip, so they're essentially bombing anything. And so that's why we've seen things like they're bombing um, apartment complexes. They're bombing, even according to one report I read in Middle East Die, they were bombing a, a graveyard. Um, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> the there's a there's an Arabic um, sort of uh, saying about, um, you know, killing the person and then coming to their funeral. Well, you know, the Israelis appear to be trying to come to kill people twice by bombing graveyards, and in in in, in that in that particular attack, there were several children killed. You know, so there doesn't seem to be anywhere at all that is safe in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, it's uh, and you know, aside from just the the sheer brutality uh, that you just described um, of Israel's continued attacks on Gaza, they are now using uh, the fact that you know they have to uh, target uh, the Palestinian. 
uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, to stop them from escalating. And they've they've carried out uh, assassinations of their leaders. And even the negotiations uh, for this latest ceasefire seem to be kind of teetering on the brink of falling apart because Israel uh, apparently refuses to release uh, someone that uh, the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad resistant group wants released. So what is what is the history of uh, the attacks on uh, this group and its leaders that uh, Israel has been carrying out that we don't know about? And who is the, the person that uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihadist resistance group wants released? Well, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is a small nationalist organization, you know, uh, which with, uh, as the as the name of the group suggests, with um, an Islamic ideology, it's both nationalist and Islamic. So quite often, Israeli propaganda will attempt to demonize Palestinian resistance group as associated with Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and, and so forth. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And for example, Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, which forms the government in the Gaza Strip and, you know, um, more than f- the best part of two decades ago now almost, um, was elected, the legitimate elected leadership of the Palestinian Authority. Um, the Islamic resistance movement um, has been in outright, outright war against um, small Al-Qaeda-type groups that have popped up from time to time in the Gaza Strip, you know, and they've kind of... Um, stamp those out. Um, these are, you know, yes, Islamic characteristics, but essentially nationalist organizations um, which are fighting to free themselves from Israeli occupation, from the settler colonial state of Israel, and to uh, allow their people to go home from where they were expelled in 1948 and have been continuously expelled ever since. And um, the Islamic Jihad is not as big an organization as Hamas, but um, it carries out a determined military struggle and it has won a lot of um, support from Palestinians because of that. Um, and interest, interestingly, this past year, we've seen the uh, Palestinian military resistance return to the West Bank, which is something which is a, a new phenomenon for for the last decade, really, because the Palestinian Authority largely stamped it out. But centering especially around Janine, we've seen the rise of, uh, or the return of Palestinian armed resistance in the West Bank. And Islamic Jihad has um, played a big part in that. Um, and it's it's meant that, you know, the, at the start of this latest Israeli escalation was for the, them to arrest an Islamic Jihad, or I should say an alleged Islamic Jihad commando in the West Bank, um, and, um, and to begin, you know, arrest operations against Palestinian militants in the West Bank. And so the Islamic Jihad leadership in the Gaza Strip is attempting to use this latest... Israeli aggression and to uh, is attempting to um, make a condition of its ceasefire for for the Israelis to release some of these prisoners. Uh, and um, you know, initial reports that I've seen suggest that um, the Israelis agreed to discuss it. So you know, we'll see what comes out of the these negotiations. 
definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having a very special Black August throwback segment here on By Any Means Necessary, where we'll be playing a interview that we did in August of 2020 with recently deceased former Black Panther and political prisoner Albert Woodfox, who spent more than 40 years in solitary confinement in the brutal, racist Angola prison in Louisiana. We talked with Woodfox about the politics of Black August and how they are relevant to the rebellion against racism that was raging in the streets of the U.S. at that time around uh, the police killing of George Floyd. And so as we honor the memory of Albert Woodfox and continue in the spirit of Black August, we thought it was important to honor him. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are now joined by Albert Woodfox, former Black Panther, political prisoner and author of the book Solitary, unbroken by four decades in solitary confinement. My story of transformation and hope. Albert, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Albert, of course, we're still in a Black August, a time of reflection, a time to study, train, fast and fight and to uh, really focus on the role of uh, political prisoners fa- uh, past and present. And I- I'm really wondering from your perspective, Albert, as a-, a recently released political prisoner, how do you sort of situate that struggle and uh, the Black August framework, if you will, in the moment that we're in right now, as uh, there's a movement in the streets against the same kind of uh, racist police terror and other forms of systemic abuse uh, that the Panthers and other groups were struggling against uh, decades ago. Well, that's ironic that, you know, we, uh, 50 years plus, Later, we're still fighting the same battle. Uh, we're still fighting, uh, you know, uh, racism uh, and the bigger racism and the systemic application of racism. Pretty much all the uh, institutions in this country, I find that it, uh, ironic, you know, but uh, given the uh, position that African Americans and other minorities and poor in this country, you really don't have to judge. Yeah, and, and, you know, this time of, of studying and fasting and reflecting uh, is focused on uh, usually uh, the prison writings of George Jackson, who himself, like yourself, was imprisoned and placed in solitary confinement for a number of years. And during that time, he, of course, educated himself uh, on this system that we are continuing to fight. And that also reflects your experience in solitary. Uh, the reason you were placed in solitary was because you were also pointing out the injustices, the inhumane and racist conditions 
in Angola prison, which is called the bloodiest prison in the South. Um, and uh, through your struggles in, in pointing out these inequities in the criminal justice system, uh, you were punished and, and, and were the uh, victim of state repression, which is fascism. And we're now looking at a moment, Albert, where people are saying that, you know, Donald Trump is bringing fascism to America. But what are your thoughts on, on that thinking about Trump is the harbinger of fascism, considering the experience that you have had in the criminal justice system and that George Jackson has had and other political prisoners have had at the hands of this system? Well, you know, first of all, I'll actually offer George Jackson. You know, he was a great influence in my life. I read, uh, you know, both these books out there, Brothers of Words of Blood Mind, you know. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I find it ironic. I wish that the battle we are fighting now was something new. But being a student of history, you know, I mean, we've been fighting these same battles since 1619. Slaves were brought in this country. And, uh, you know, uh, right now we have a, you know, Black Lives Movement, which, you know, uh, myself and Robert and Harmon have supported uh, from its inception. And, uh, you know, and of course now we are happy to see that, you know, it is uh, finally being recognized. Uh, uh, as a movement to save black lives, you know, and all lives as a whole. But, you know, it just, it just amazes me that every, every decade after America and other poor minorities and poor whites have to fight the same battles over and over. It's not, it's not a situation where we're fighting to move forward. But we're fighting just to survive, you know, and uh, that seems to be the situation uh, in, in, in America right now. We have a, a president who is openly uh, admitted white supremacist. Uh, white supremacy movement has come to power in this country, you know, and uh, then, you know, we're in a position where we're fighting a defensive battle rather than a battle to move forward. Yeah, and you make a, a couple of good points, Albert. Uh, number one, when you talk about the fight for survival that, that a lot of people are caught up in, I think that's very real. Given the conditions that a lot of Americans find themselves in, particularly in this moment <clears throat> under the coronavirus pandemic, where, you know, we have millions of people unemployed and uh, money is running out and people find themselves not able to pay rent and, and, and things like this. But uh, you also mentioned uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and how that has really been sort of uh, uh, one of the most uh, viable uh, forms of resistance that we've seen, I think, in recent years. And that has definitely been giving uh, leadership, I think, in a number of ways to, to the current wave of uh, protest that we're in, certainly the politics of it are as well, you know, very much, I think, flowing from uh, the radical movements of uh, the 60s and beyond groups like the Panthers, people like Asada Shakur. And what that says to me, uh, Albert, is it, it sort of highlights the importance of organization and not just being in organizations, but being organized to sort of have these strategies and these tactics for fight back. Because, you know, we, we, we see what's coming from the political mainstream, but both, of course, you know, I think Democrats 
and uh, uh, Republicans in that way, neither really speaking uh, to many of the demands or the conditions that uh, uh, lots of people are experiencing. And so the the need to be organized and to be in organizations that are involved in the fight in the same way that, you know, you and the Angola Three and uh, the Panthers were is so important in a time like this. Yeah, you know, um, one thing, you know, you know, right now you have this uh, so-called stalemate going on in Washington as whether or not to provide people with the means to survive in the form of, uh, 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 you know, uh, stimulus checks and stuff like that. And I find it ironic that overall politicians are upper middle class to very wealthy. And so they're not motivated by the same reality that everyday working people and poor people are. So that, and you know, they have money and they have financial security, I can see, that allows them the luxury of administering so much pain and suffering to working class and poor people in this country. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a solution in that. We seem to be stuck with the system that we live in right now. But, you know, uh, again, you know, uh, they had to struggle there to win, you know. Yeah, that that is absolutely a credo that we try so hard to live by. But, you know, I'm wondering if we are taking the right approach because I see that in this moment uh, of protest, there is, from my perspective, Albert, not enough focus on the uh, abolition movements, the uh, political education movements that arose out of the incarcerated population that that gave us this amazing analysis from a very, very purely working class, uh, a, a marginalized people perspective. You know, the, the analysis of capitalism leading to fascism and the struggle against white supremacist fascism that already existed in this system came out of marginalized people who were already locked down in this uh, a fascist system. But I'm wondering if you are feeling like the 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 propensity for this system to demonize uh, and further marginalize incarcerated people has made it difficult for people involved in this struggle now to do exactly what Black August is is designed to do, to look back on the the agitation that came out of the incarcerated community and use that analysis and knowledge for our struggle right now and propel us forward. Well, one of the things I find uh, difficult to, to accept is that, you know, a very, very large part of the African-American community for sure don't even realize or understand what black art is, why it's being celebrated. You know? And, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how we go about remedying that other than, you know, celebrating black office every year where our education, our raising people level of consciousness about, you know, so many comrades that have, that have made the ultimate sacrifice for a social struggle or for humanity. And uh, all I can say is that, you know, uh, I continue to uh, be actively involved in social struggle. Uh, you know, I've been free now for approximately four years, and then what it has done is given me an opportunity to be involved in a lot of 
programs and uh, organize a resistance uh, in this country against, you know, uh, racism and systemic application of racism and all the other ills of uh, capitalist society. One thing I, uh, you know, uh, my fiance and I were talking about the other day is that you don't hear enough talk about class struggle and what's going on in this country. And I think that you better understand what's going on. You have to recognize that, you know, there is a, there is a thing is, is class struggle going on. And a lot of the people we look to for leadership, you know, their positions, their views, their philosophy reflects whatever class they're in, you know. And, uh, you know, those are some of the things I think we're dealing with now, you know. I think the Black Lives Matter movement now and the movement in this country now has been culmination from 1619 until now of the struggles of African-American people. And, uh, you know, I just hope this is not another situation where everybody hopes are raised and then we go back to doing the same thing, you know. We've got to move beyond struggling to survive. And to, to struggle to, to move forward, to struggle to progress, struggle to achieve, you know. Definitely. And you hit a couple of important points. I think uh, certainly when you talk about uh, the class struggle in this country, and, and I agree that I think a lot of people feel stuck in this capitalist system. And so when 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 we look at how the different contradictions of the capitalist system have combined to uh, create really dire uh, conditions for so many people in this country, that's directly connected to issues like racist police terrorists, connected to issues of war. And I really feel like the movement in the streets is uh, uh, speaking to that reality in a number of ways, even if perhaps not necessarily uh, using that uh, precise language. But um, as ever, Albert, uh, in our last couple of minutes here, it seems uh, very important to sort of uh, uh, keep at the center and understanding that these issues, all the ones we've been talking about, emanate from the capitalist system itself. And in the same way that the Panthers did, it seems we would do well to to really be talking about and organizing around, well, what does a system beyond the capitalist uh, 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 organization look like? You know, a system that is uh, geared towards human development instead of one of uh, uh, profit. Well, you know, uh, let's take the police department. Uh, you know, I, uh, I seem to be this, it seem to be this double-edged sword in the arguments about policing and stuff. You know, that's first of all, we have to put Police departments are institutions of oppression. They are the guardians of the uh, uh, the wealth and the, uh, uh, the wealth in this country, you know. And so, you know, we they are necessary evil. And but you know, I, me personally, I don't think I will ever feel comfortable with you know the police uh, institutions of policing in this country. But I hope at some point in time we can move to a, a peaceful coexistence and and work together, you know, and, 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 and but other than that, you know, it's, it's just a mess, man. You know, it's, you know I'm seeing to be struggling for words here because in my mind, what we are talking about now have been talked about so many times, but, you know, again, you know, we, we, we always, uh, in a position of survive, fighting for survival rather than fighting to, to move forward, you know? Rest in peace, Albert Woodfox.
and free all political prisoners. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 8th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live, and remember friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When uh, at the top of the hour today, it is the 72nd birthday of Dr. Matulu Shakur, a healer, a revolutionary, political prisoner, former uh, Black Panther, former Black Liberation Army combatant, uh, we talked about him just the other day on the show with the Malcolm X grassroots movement about how there's yet another uh, a renewed push to free Dr. Matulu Shakur as he is dealing with some serious health issues and continues to be hamstrung by the machinations of the court system. So we want to say happy birthday to Dr. Matulu Shakur. Free Matulu Shakur and all political prisoners. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Christine Hendricks, president to the University City School Board, Junior Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship for Reconciliation, and contributor to the Truth Telling Project and We Stay Woke podcast. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. And Christine, uh, this week will mark eight years since uh, August 2014 when police officer Darren Wilson shoot and kills Mike Brown, uh, an unarmed black teenager in Ferguson, Missouri. And in doing so, sparking off uh, the movement for black lives in earnest. 
And I feel like there continue to be a number of ripple effects from the uh, uh, Mike Brown moment, if you will, that really put a spotlight on Ferguson, Missouri, not a place that I think was well known amongst most people in this country before this incident. And of course, later in November of 2014, a grand jury declined to indict Officer Wilson. And I think this is particularly relevant for a couple of reasons, given that we're only two years removed at this point from a massive rebellion against racism in the streets uh, concerning the racist police killing of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. But even beyond that, and even certainly as we continue to uh, see uh, racist policing happen here in the United States, Christine, I mean, I was looking at this piece from uh, uh, Mapping Violence uh, that actually uh, maps police. It's a database that maps police violence. And according to uh, a recent report that they put out, U.S. police have already killed over 700 people in the year 2022, and they're on track to uh, break the record. And reportedly, they've killed more people through the first seven months of this year than they have any other year on record. And that's since they began tracking this in 2013. Uh, uh, since 2013, the database has found that black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than white people, while police kill black people at a higher rate than white people in 48 of the country's 50 largest cities. Uh, according to the database, just one in three police killings begins with an alleged violent crime, with the other two thirds, which is the vast majority, uh, beginning with things like traffic stops, mental health crises and alleged nonviolent crimes. A substantial number of people and I'm reading uh, bullet points from the database here. A substantial number of people were fleeing at the time that they were killed. And so, you know, Christine, I just feel like there's a lot that has occurred from the time of Mike Brown to this very moment. And as someone who is rooted in uh, that community there in University City, uh, I'm just wondering how you're considering it all at this point. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's a, um, a lot to take in. And, you know, even from the very beginning, I think the um, the data around, you know, um, killings, uh, you know, police killings was not really being talked about. You know, at the time, um, back in 2014, we were saying about three a day, and it seems like that's ramping up. And so, you know, one of the things that just, you know, just I'm thinking about is just that this seems to be like a, a fascist backlash to, you know, our uprising. And, and I think the data kind of, kind of backed me up on that, you know, just to see, you know, how um, groups came to the street, grassroots groups, um, especially people of color came to the streets um, beginning in 2014 and, and really just, you know, continuing that, you know, um, year after year, sometimes several times a year um, because of the extrajudicial police murders um, that have been taking place that we really hadn't been taking, you know, much into account until Ferguson and Mike Brown, until, you know, people stood up, until buildings started to burn, until, you know, chaos erupted into the streets, and then it became, you know, this kind of national consciousness around it, which is good. And like I said before, again, we still have to, you know, adjust and um, consider that anytime we are making progress in our movement, um, we're going to have that fascist backlash, uh, you know, from the powers that be, from um, police. They're, you know, they're going to be, even though they're seen as, you know, not doing their job half the time, they're still getting, you know, being given more money. And so that's something that, you know, we um, in the activist community have to be aware of. And it's something that we're going to have to continue to push back against. 
You know, Christine, I wonder what your thoughts are on the way even many of us in the activist community uh, respond when the Department of Justice seems to do something right. Like they recently charged the four uh, cops involved in the Breonna Taylor raid um, with uh, her death. And in the case of Mike Brown, you know, they did issue that scathing report of uh, the uh, uh, Ferguson Police Department, you know, outlining the blatant uh, racist abuse, uh, even racist abuse that Darren Wilson committed in other instances. But this was the same Department of Justice that claimed that Wilson was justified in taking Michael Brown's life. And, and it seems that Every time the the Department of Justice that can't seem to make up its mind whether it is actually going to pursue justice for the people or continue to be uh, a cover for the police and their criminal activity against the people, it just seems like every time they they throw us a bone in in these instances where they might uh, you know charge some cops for killing uh, uh, someone you know unjustly. We get excited about it, but I, I feel like we we lose sight of the fact that the Justice Department has been double-minded and has talked out of the side of their neck uh, the, the whole time, throughout the entire history of struggle against racist police terrorism. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on how we should be approaching anything the Justice Department does in regard to this issue? Yeah, that's a great question. And I just believe that any time we approach the Justice Department or Injustice Department, um, it should be with a grain of salt. Uh, we, we as um, activists and organizers and just even lay people should be looking at them as exactly who they are, which are the top cops, the highest, you know, law enforcement agency really, you know, in the land, the ability to prosecute um, is what they have. And so, you know, when we know what the Department of Justice is, we will understand that most of their time will be spent upholding, you know, um, you know, systems. So they will be holding, you know, they are going to, you know, hold up the status quo. They're going to, even if they do some prosecutorial, uh, you know, things with cops, eventually, you know, they have to remember who they are, which is the cops. And so they are going to continue to uphold, you know, the tenets of white supremacy. And so even when they do something that we, you know, see as like, oh, this is good. I mean, that's also, it's typically one low-hanging fruit. And also, you know, it could be seen as being something that's political. We're, we're in a, um, election year, even if the DOJ that would like to see itself as apolitical, um, they still are political. We're in an election year. Um, there could be a myriad of reasons why the Justice Department would want to, you know, make itself look good at this, at this point in time. And I think we should be like, okay, great, you're doing your job, but they are not heroes. They get no kudos. And, you know, an indictment and charges is really just the first step. Um, many a cop has been charged and many a cop has walked away or received, uh, you know, a sentence for murder that's less than, you know, some people receive for, um, you know, marijuana or for low-level, um, other low-level crimes. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, that this is a first step. It's nothing to be excited about, and we have to continue to apply pressure to all facets of government until, um, until revolution for real. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, uh, one of those ways that we see apply pressure and I feel like we've seen it, uh, you know, at least somewhat successfully. I mean, if we look at how um, Officer Darius, uh, um, not Darren Wilson, but um, oh, wow, uh, the, the the cop that killed uh, George Floyd, his name is uh, escaping me. But um, uh, how he was eventually charged. He was eventually charged only because of the pressure that was felt from the street. And even interestingly, how that played out was uh, really uh, we saw the police try to separate themselves from that officer. They, they basically tried to make it seem like this was someone who went rogue, that went against his training. They, you know, they brought in the person that uh, that, uh, you know, uh, did uh, trained martial arts and all of that in the department just to basically particularize the officer and to make it seem like, oh, this was such an unfortunate thing, as opposed to something that is really quite regular for police departments all across the country. And we see, uh, I think, something similar in the case of uh the police killing of Breonna Taylor, as we see that uh, four officers have been charged uh, by federal officials in the raid on Breonna Taylor's house that resulted in her death. And I mean, just the corruption here is just pretty deep. I got to say, because I mean, they're charged with falsifying an affidavit that was acted on to conduct the raid and then were accused of covering up the fact that they falsified this affidavit. I mean, it really is pretty ugly and is made even more so when you look at how uh, Breonna Taylor was like slandered in the public afterward with people, you know, criticizing her partner and all these sorts of things, anything to keep from uh, actually having accountability where it belongs, which of course is uh, squarely on the shoulders of the police that actually killed her. You know what I mean? And so with Breonna Taylor and also with George Floyd, um, we see that uh, uh, the system really only seems to move when they feel an overwhelming force from below and from uh, uh, the streets, from the people that they're, you know, protecting property from, speaking of the chief role of the police under this uh, capitalist system. And so what's clear then, Christine, is that, you know, the struggle against racist police terror uh, definitely continues, but also seems like it needs to grow and sort of strengthen and uh, uh, become perhaps in some ways uh, more uh, uh, even deeper ensconced, if you will, you know, in communities and in a lot of this work to to keep up that pressure, which seems to be the only way that uh, police are, are brought to heal. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, Derek Chauvin, um, so for Derek Chauvin, that's right. The uh, person who murdered uh, George Floyd. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, um, just going back to, you know, Breonna Taylor in Louisville and just this case in general, you know, the, the corruption didn't just, you know, reside within the police department and with the police. The corruption also sat within the prosecutor's office because Daniel Cameron, you know, he, and the same with, you know, what happened in, in, in Ferguson. Uh, with, you know, the former prosecutor here, um, uh, McCullough, um, they both played a part in, you know, those officers or Darren Wilson, um, you know, being acquitted. And, and they, they they hit evidence. Um, they, they tampered with witnesses. And they just did the most. And so if we're really talking about, you know, the, the Justice Department or the Department of Justice doing their job, part of doing their job is also not just stopping at the 
police, but stopping at the different um, government entities who also aided and abetted the police and and carrying out these murders, carrying out and covering up these murders. And so we, that's something that we really should be, you know, talking about and putting pressure on the Department of Justice, on the Biden administration to really be talking about these prosecutors um, and their role in, in, in covering up murder. Yeah, and I think as as the Biden administration has, you know, they're taking a little victory lap for their uh, Inflation Reduction Act passing. I don't think we should forget the abject failure uh, of the Biden administration to pass even just the lackluster George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It passed the House, but it didn't pass the Senate. And the fact that the Biden administration really didn't fight for it. I mean, I, I think, again, we look to, you know, the political apparatus in this country and see the way that it continues to fail the people in addressing this issue that continues to get worse, continues to persist. But yet and still, uh, Christine, these are the same folks who are telling us once again that we have to vote for this guy if he runs again in 2024. And those of us who are involved in this work uh, are surrounding racist police terrorism and ending it, we're sitting here going, why, when this is his track, track record? Right. And, and honestly, I don't even believe that the Democrats even want Biden or his track record. But as we, you know, talk about Biden, you know, Biden is uh, is what I like to call a, a, a dino for real, because he's a Democrat in name only. In so many ways, um, he, you know, champions um, the status quo and many Republican policies. And, and in so many ways, you know, he is the architect of, you know, our um, prison um, industrial complex that, you know, we are trying so so hard to dismantle at this moment. He was the architect and the arbiter of many of these uh, racist policing policies that are, you know, affecting us to this day. So if we're looking to Biden or his administration um, for any help, um, then, you know, we're not going to get much because these these policies are things that he is comfortable with. And any promises that he made, um, I believe, were made to, of course, to capture the black vote um, and, and and to get a, and to get elected. Um, so, you know, I don't have faith that this administration will will go as far as they need to uh, when it comes to protecting oppressed communities from police terror. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's funny how you mention about how the Democrats may not even be that interested in Joe Biden. I mean, you know, if, if we're to believe, you know, certain uh, things that have been released publicly and that have been reported, I mean, it seems like that very well may be the case. And I mean, we raise this all the time on the show. I mean, in terms of the uh, upcoming um, midterms and then in a couple of years, when we have the next presidential election. It's just really not looking good uh, for the Democrats in terms of putting up someone that can actually uh, uh, excite people to leave their house to go uh, cast a vote. And uh, beyond the fact that they don't have uh, someone with that kind of personality or program, uh, what they do have is a whole lot of broken promises from this administration. And, you know, one of them that was actually kept was this, you know, more uh, funneling of uh, uh, money to police. And it's so wild about how, you know, one of the consequences of the George Floyd moment was uh, the popularization 
of uh, the concept of defunding the police, which beforehand was only really talked about amongst like uh, activists and organizer circles. But there was sort of an all out campaign against that whole idea. And then there was a lie that was concocted, just a straight up lie that was concocted and repeated and regurgitated by Democrats across this country that, you know, uh, the police departments were like wholesale defunded and then crime uh, uh, skyrocketed and all of that, which then is supposed to justify uh, the, the, the continued superfunding of the police when that just isn't true. And so it's wild how entire scenarios are just pulled up out of nowhere. And then even mentioning Biden, when you were talking, Christine, it made me think about how, you know, this is the same guy that not that long ago was on that call with these so-called black leaders and was just screaming at them for having the audacity to ask him about uh, police brutality issues. I mean, like I say, when I talk about it, he did everything but crack a whip at the screen. Like they're on this big Zoom call. So now here he is looking like an overseer and they're just sitting there uh, looking stuck on stupid. And so it's just clear that uh, uh, police terror continues to be a serious uh, Achilles heel for the U.S. And I think a prime example of how this country is not this uh, shining, glowing examples of human rights as it projects uh, uh, to the world, Christine. And uh, in reality, uh, that kind of movement that we're speaking to that we need is so uh, uh, desperately something that needs to be developed because we see that uh, all we get from, you know, our so-called leaders is just, you know, more broken promises and outright lies. Oh, definitely. And I think that for the most part, I think that a lot of people expected, you know, these broken promises and lies from Biden. I think that it was kind of a pity vote. But, you know, what I am seeing and I didn't know and I I think I kind of learned today was that, you know, that there are many progressive prosecutors who did come to power, um, you know, after the the murder of George Floyd. And these progressive prosecutors who ran on, you know, getting people out of jail who were sitting there for low level crimes and, you know, uh, ending cash bail and some of the things that other um, industrial lives and First Nation countries do not do to their people. And and, and then uh, conservatives and, uh, you know, including conservative Democrats, use that that as a way to, you know, use the, 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 the crime going up and the pandemic and all of these things to say, oh, look at these progressive prosecutors. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Crime is going up because of them. I know that's happening, you know, with uh, Kimberly Gardner uh, here in St. Louis. There was a recall election for the, the, the progressive prosecutor in San Francisco, I believe. And so, you know, these tactics um, are beginning to work because, you know, people are, are, are listening to the soundbite instead of understanding that, you know, we went through a pandemic and we're, you know, going through inflation and all the things that are causing, you know, the rise in crime. And, it's, you know, we're having mental health issues, everything. And it's not that progressive prosecutors are putting in the uh, policies that help people, especially poor people. It's just the nature of the way that our system is and the fact that we don't have the type of supports that we need in order to catch people when they fall. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lupemon continue to be joined by Christine Hendricks. And Christine, you know, there are also other, but I think related issues happening in your area there in uh, a University City. I know there's been an issue of flooding uh, that has happened there, both in University City, also in uh, East St. Louis. Uh, I'm curious how this unfolded and what the response has been like uh, from the government. And I really feel like these kinds of climate issues that we're seeing within uh, the U.S. uh, aren't really getting talked about, just like uh, uh, from what we've been seeing in Kentucky, which I believe also has uh, faced some flooding as well. And so uh, uh, sort of break down what's happening with this issue there, Christine, and how it's been unfolding. Yeah, so thank you. Um, This, you know, issue has, like, you know, hit super close to home for me. And, you know, while I'll say that I've been very very lucky in that our house did not get flooded to the point where we sustained any damage. When I say that my neighbors, I mean like the next street over was a river, the store where we normally go to get our, you know, family daughter, which, you know, but we, you know, it's a neighborhood store. People shop there to get their, you know, things. It's closed down to this day and we're what, two weeks out um, because there was a, um, a lake in the parking lot. I have a close personal friend whose, you know, car was covered, you know, by water, and that was her main way of, you know, transportation and work. And so there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of stories like this all across um, St. Louis that, you know, are not were not adequately addressed by our government. First and foremost, Governor Parsons drug his heels on declaring, um, you know, in a disaster area, primarily because, you know, St. Louis is not a place that votes for him. So, he, you know, the response that he gave, I believe, did not matter because, you know, St. Louis is a Democratic stronghold and, you know, Governor Parsons is a Republican. Um, you know, as far as, you know, the people here in St. Louis are very charitable and very giving. And so, you know, there's been a lot of community response and, you know, neighbors helping neighbors and, you know, people really stepping up. But again, the government response is slow. Um, it's inadequate. You know, if you're a, if you're a renter, Many people who are renting homes or apartments, they're out of luck. Um, Many people have been um, basically evicted, um, given three days' notice, and told to pack up and they need to leave as apartments are being fixed. There are homes in my community where um, people are literally throwing out their entire houses. They're in their front yard. There's their tables, chairs, bedding, just clothing, everything um, that people are throwing out because it, it was damaged by the flood. And, um, you know, you can, the, the resources and the availability of the resources, is, it's just hard. Um, and the other night, there was a line um, in front of my house, really, that was, you know, wrapped around the community center and down the street of people that were that were seeking services from the government. And by the accounts that I'm hearing, um, they feel like the, the response is slow and, again, inadequate. And, you know, once again, this is such a, a recurring issue with, uh, you know, the government that we pay our taxes to. Um, you know, there is a history of flooding in this area, but the response from the federal government has never changed. So can you tell us a little bit about 
um, that history of response from the federal government that's always been, um, you know, insufficient, but gives us an insight into why it's so difficult for people in this community that has a history of flooding to get any assistance to address this issue that happens pretty regularly. Yeah, so I'm just going to give you my um, my history lesson um, that I'm aware of. Um, I've lived in this community since 2012 in University City specifically. No, before that, 20, 2008. I lived in University City since 2008. University City specifically and a lot of St. Louis um, was built um, on a floodplain, um, specifically the, those areas that are home to um, minority populations, specifically black folks. Um, and so um, especially affordable housing was built in a floodplain. And I want to say around 2012, um, there was a consent decree that was issued um, by the DOJ that said our um, our sewer district, which is uh, Missouri Sewer uh, District, MSD, um, that they were to build basically these sewage tanks all around St. Louis and in University City specifically that were that were supposed to deal with um, the flooding and the fact that when it does flood like that, the sewage gets really backed up and then the water builds up. So even so. A couple of weeks ago, we had about 15 um, inches of rain in about two days because of climate change. However, in any given rain cycle, we could have severe flooding um, and homes will, you know, get some take on some water damage in University City. So we were issued this consent decree. About seven years ago, um, we met as a community to decide where they wanted to put these sewage tanks. And, of course, they wanted to build these sewage tanks in the middle of the black community in University City. And so they were supposed to be above-ground sewage tanks. Well, what MSD didn't realize was University City has a very strong voter base, has very engaged citizenry. And so um, black people and white people came out to protest that and say, no, you're not going to build an above-ground sewer you know, tank in our um, black community outside of people's homes near an elementary school. And so we sent MSD back to the drawing board to come up with a better project that would serve the community and would not be an eyesore in somebody's neighborhood. Of course, MSD didn't want to do that because the cheapest route was through the black neighborhood. So they didn't want to have to buy up the land in a more expensive part of the city, this, that, and the other. And so to this day, uh, we have not heard anything back from MSD. But in the meantime, um, the city, which speaks to the bad public policy that is you know, happening in our city, and University City is a progressive city, but our city continues to build large-scale corporate projects um, on this floodplain that were, are only going to increase the amount of flooding that certain University City residents experience. And by certain, I mean black folks or, or, or people with less means. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, when you talk about the issue like these uh, uh, these sewage tanks and the lack of response to the flood, I mean, the idea that um, the governor wouldn't uh, make those resources available simply because uh, uh, the, the the St. Louis area is a Democratic stronghold. I mean, to me, it's just unconscionable. I mean, he's literally just saying that he has no uh, uh, real feeling or concern for the people in his state simply because folks in that particular area are not a part of his support base. And so I think it just shows how uh, how disposable 
um, the lives of, of poor working and oppressed people are. And, I don't, and it's no coincidence, in my humble opinion, that we're uh, talking about this all happening in a, uh, a community that is, uh, at least in my impression, you know, both, both black and generally working class. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as it all sort of continues and even in seeing as that hall goes, I mean, it's hard not to see a lot of this, Christine, as its own form of uh, environmental racism. I mean, we see things like these uh, uh, sewage tanks be proposed and oftentimes built all the times, uh, you know, anything that's hazardous or can have sort of long range negative effects on communities over uh, generations. If like you look at places like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, largely black, largely poor area where you see uh, uh, all these um, infirmities and, and diseases and obviously high rates of cancer precisely because of the presence of these uh, corporate industries right by uh, uh, the community. I mean, it just gives a real insight, I think, into uh, uh, how White supremacy and capitalism work in tandem to create these situations of super exploitation for a poor working and oppressed people in this country. And I think it shows why, I mean, frankly, the whole system itself uh, uh, has to go. But it also shows how important it is that we continue to fight back, you know. Definitely. Absolutely. And as I continue to think about, you know, the flooding, the flooding didn't just impact, you know, flood zones. Um, St. Louis also is home to um, the, the landfill with the, uh, you know, with the radioactive waste, as well as Coldwater Creek. And when we had that flooding, those areas in St. Louis also flooded. And so that contamination was probably spread even further uh, with the water. And so, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the flood and that damage. There's there's further health implications, too, that are um, affecting, you know, people and primarily black and people of low means uh, in the St. Louis area. And of course, this again brings me back to another piece of legislation, the the uh, bill that was just passed uh, by the Biden administration that we talked about a little earlier, they're celebrating so much about. It, it does include some type of climate uh, provisions in it. But I mean, does the bill address any of these issues that you just raised that people in of vulnerable communities that are mostly black and brown and indigenous are already facing and, of course, will face even more, Christine. Now, I personally don't know exactly what is in that bill, but if I'm a, a betting woman, I'm going to, to bet that it's going to placate corporations more so than anything, and it's not going to address the real problems that, you know, that my community and, and uh, you know, people in Kentucky are currently facing right now and, and just around the United States. These natural um, disasters that are caused by climate change will continue to happen, and they will not be fully addressed by this government. And, and I believe that, you know, for black people um, and for other indigenous folks and people of color, um, and, and environment is probably the most important thing that we need to fight against, because if we do not have an environment in which to live in, we can't fight against, you know, the racism, the sexism and the homophobia. First and foremost, we have to, you know, really solidify our fight against um, ecocide. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's one, it's one of those uh, uh, issues that absolutely affects everyone. If you live on Earth and you're impacted by climate change and a lot of those other issues uh, that you you know named, I think, are all intertwined uh, with that, particularly when we talk about how this affects um, uh, different communities that are exploited for uh, different reasons. And you're correct that, I mean, so often, and this is what is a part of the frustrating thing about how climate change is handled or really more to the point mishandled by the ruling class in this country, by the Democrats and the Republicans. And I've said this before, on the one hand, you have the Republicans who outright deny that it's even happening. Meanwhile, you have the Democrats who will acknowledge that uh, uh, climate change is happening, but refuse to do anything to really tackle the deep systemic root of why climate change is happening. And like you say, you know, they'll do these little, uh, uh, you know, basically nothing types of pieces of legislation that sound real good and maybe you'll get them a little bit of a good PR and, you know, some points with, I don't know, some big environmental groups or something. Uh, but it simply does not actually impact the issue in that way. And so while we're constantly faced with all this political theater and all this dog and pony show with these officials pretending to be doing something to actually help the situation, the earth is getting warmer and all of these uh, 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 natural disasters continue to happen more and more frequently. And as they happen, we're seeing very clearly already that the damage from that and the uh, ripple effects from these increasing and intensifying natural disasters are placed on the shoulders of these same poor working and oppressed folks. And so it it just shows a lot, I think, about how uh, uh, this ruling class will uh, uh, continue to ignore the problem on the one hand or pretend to fight it on the other, even at perhaps their own peril. That's the wild part about it, because they all live on Earth, too. Now, of course, they have the resources to protect themselves in certain ways against the worst of us in the way that the rest of us don't. But it's just so wild. I mean, it's similar to how um, both wings of the uh, of the ruling class uh, political establishment in this country continue to uh, uh, push for war with different countries. I mean, namely like uh, Russia and China um, with these different uh, nuclear equipped uh, uh, countries as if they don't understand the implications that that could have for all of humanity as we understand it. And so, as we often say, I mean, the ruling class seems hell bent, bound, held and determined on pushing humanity into oblivion. And it's up to us to snatch humanity back from that dark potentiality. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Christine Hendricks is here. And we have a caller on the line. Dave, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, happy Monday, y'all. Um, my county just passed a plastic bags tax, you know, for the plastic bags you get at the grocery store. I think they said, oh, in 23, five cent tax on the bag. 
And one of the local grocery chains reacted in an interesting way, which was to get rid of plastic bags um, in general. Instead, to charge you for a paper bag would really push you into using a, a reusable bag. And it kind of just hits on discussions that I'm having a hard time having with friends and family, which is to point to the more systemic level of the fact that I think, what, 100 corporations are accountable for at least 75% of the greenhouse emissions and that reducing, um, you know, climate change reactions to this very individualistic level and rather petty level of a plastic bag from a grocery store, um, while not insignificant, is a rather small thing. And then, you know, to do it via taxation raises a lot of questions. So I'm just having trouble relating to friends and family where they, you know, kind of insist that, yes, you know, there is this personal responsibility. All of our individual actions do add up versus to really examine the capitalist mode of production in terms of how they produce the bulk of the greenhouse gases. Well, thanks a lot, Dave. Really appreciate that question. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, here in D.C., we have a bag tax like that, too. And it's interesting that, uh, and perhaps not surprising, that uh, Dave was mentioning that uh, a store simply switched to paper bags uh, because of the tax on plastic bags. There's one thing about capitalism. It is incredibly uh, uh, adaptable and is always willing to adjust in whatever way is necessary to continue maximizing profits. But uh, your thoughts on our caller? Yeah, I thought that was interesting that, that, you know, the store just, you know, automatically switched to paper bags, realizing that, you know what, they they would rather just go ahead and use a different means for people to, um, you know, take their their goods away and rather than, uh, you know, possibly lose uh, that revenue of people just not shopping there because they don't want to pay a bag tax. But, you know, here in D.C., I seem to recall that we were given in most stores the option uh, to choose paper bags, but more often than not, when you went into the large chain stores, there weren't a lot of paper bags that were available for you if you wanted a paper bag. So that that was the way that it seemed to me that the system of capitalism ensured that it was the consumer, the working class, and the poor that's particularly um, uh, uh, um, uh, specific here in D.C., uh, that that cost was felt by a lot of the working class and the poor, while the people who were actually responsible for polluting the waterways, which was why the bag tax was uh, implemented in the first place, uh, this five-cent bag tax, oh, to clean up the Anacostia and Potomac rivers. Well, it wasn't plastic bags necessarily that was uh, uh, specifically and solely polluting those rivers and causing decades of ecological damage to the water to those waterways in the surrounding areas, but it was runoff from industries, from companies. It was illegal dumping from corporations. So, you know, we get people saying, oh, we're going to protect the environment. And you force the working class and the poor to foot that bill, to to carry that cost. And the people who are actually responsible for uh, polluting the water that the very same working class and poor um, have to drink, cook in and bathe in, they get off scot-free. And and still, when you go into a lot of these stores here in D.C., um, there's still not an option in a lot of these stores to get a paper bag. That's how entrenched this idea 
of, you know, forced personal responsibility, individual uh, responsibility for affecting climate change is is so deeply embedded in our psyche now. And and I feel the caller's pain. It's a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, um, uh, definitely. Uh, Christine, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, when I think about it, uh, you know, I, I like the fact that a store is, I mean, even though it's for a purely capitalistic reason, at least they, you know, realize that they don't want to pass that cost on to um, consumers. I believe that there needs to be more systemic laws in place that eliminate um that eliminate plastic waste and plastic bags that, again, do not pass on um, that cost to individuals because, as Jackie stated, you know, mo- most uh, most of our environmental issues are coming from corporations who are allowed to pollute our water, um, our land, who are and they're basically, like she said, are, are getting off scot-free. And so I believe that um, if we're going to have real public policy, it should not be on the backs of black, brown, indigenous people of color um, and, and in poorer communities, it should be um, on the backs of the corporations who are doing the most damage. Yeah, definitely. What, what I was trying to think of earlier when I was stumbling and fumbling there, I, I was trying to think of the last time I even like saw a paper bag in the grocery store. Like, I, I literally think it's been uh, years. But, you know, I wanted to hone in on what Dave was asking about in terms of the uh, uh, individualistic responses to climate change. And see, uh, when, you, when you look at the mental terrain of the people of the United States, right, when you look at why people think the way they think, I think there's two things happening here. Number one, we know that uh, American capitalist culture is excruciatingly individualistic. And so we're all indoctrinated and taught to believe that any issue can somehow be solved uh, through individual effort instead of collective effort on top of the fact that that is how this issue specifically has been portrayed to us for so long. All you got to do is uh, recycle or, you you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? That, that, that's all you got to do or compost or, you know, all these sorts of things, excuse me, that are perfectly fine to do. But a bunch of self-selecting individuals deciding to do things at maybe some time is not going to really approach the scope and the breadth and depth of the problem. So on uh, the one hand, and even if we look at how uh, the media often portrays it in this gloom and doom sort of way to where they actually tend to accurately talk about all the issues with climate change, but present no real solution. And so if we're able to show people people that uh, basically having a bunch of people randomly decide to maybe do some of these things sometimes is just not going to cut it. It can't be this haphazard thing. There has to be a massive, organized, systemic response to this issue if it's really going to be uh, uh, critically addressed. And certainly that can be a difficult conversation to have because of how we've been indoctrinated to think about that. But I think over time, if you continue to show people the contradictions of these things and how just on its face, it doesn't make sense uh, for there to be some kind of individual solution for something that affects the whole planet, then I think uh, you can begin to really make some headway there. But we've got another caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. I know. Um, I just kind of wanted to touch off of that as well in terms of kind of when you look into the individual solutions. For example, in Houston, uh, there's a group called Tejas that does these things called toxic tours. And it goes through parts of the east end of Houston 
um, the Buffalo Bayou, where they've set up a lot of industrial stuff, and that that stuff just pollutes and pollutes. And one of the plants is actually an aluminum refinery plant. And from what I understand, also glass refining and other other types of like recycling processes are actually quite toxic themselves. And just kind of like going off of that in terms of individual solutions almost being easy, easy to, uh, to to debunk as well, just as we move forward, you know, thinking about production. Because the same organization also is involved with the keeping the ground movement. So there has to be this kind of like understanding of it as a production level thing and not a consumption level thing. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Christine, your thoughts. Yeah, I think that was what what Alex said. I think was probably the probably the point that um, we were all kind of you know dancing around, which is that um, you know individual responsibility is one thing, but it really boils down to what these corporations are doing, and even corporations who are seen as being uh, quote unquote green or quote unquote you know helping the environment um, also have a level of toxicity and also have a level of um, you know, uh, you know, trash or whatever that they that they add to the environment as well. And so again, it it must be um, a systemic uh, must be a systemic solution to the systemic problem. Um, there must be good public policies um, for corporations because that's really where we need to focus most of our environmental activism on. Is you know these corporations who are polluting. Um, first and foremost, um, in our neighborhoods where we live. And I think that is a great rallying point that people could get behind because, like I said, environmental uh, racism and environmental destruction is probably the biggest thing that we have facing us right now because it is seriously a life-or-death issue. Jackie Lukman. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely the case. And, and you know, I remember having conversations with folks like in the grocery store about the 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 five cent bag tax and how you know yeah it's great to to recycle and you know I always believe that charging individual people an extra whatever it was for you know using plastic bags and then of course you know not giving people an actual option to for another uh, alternative because then the alternatives they give you is of course to buy the so-called reusable bag from the store, right? So in it in every part of this individualistic response to a a corporate uh, problem, a corporate caused problem, a capitalist caused problem, it it's just it just creates another capitalist trap. So that the 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 problem never gets solved. But the people who are actually perpetuating the problem and cause the problem in the first place, they actually make more money off of the people who they are in turn making responsible, like literally making the consumer, working class and poor people, the scapegoats for their years and years, sometimes decades of ecological destruction. So, you know, there there are conversations that you that you can have with people on a one on one level. But I, I like what the last caller said about the, you know, these these kinds of uh, group tours, uh, uh, organizations that focus on these things. And we have to incorporate as organizers the focus on uh, climate justice, environmental justice in our organizing, because this literally is the only planet we have. And the capitalists 
have destroyed it to the point where we are on the brink of climate catastrophe. So we're literally saving our own lives by taking this issue seriously in our organizing, Sean. Yeah, definitely. Shout out to uh, by the means necessary chat. Jam though says personal responsibility is always the right wing's excuse. And that's a fact that, that, that that's a fact. I mean, this individualization of all these different issues really, excuse me, just provides cover for uh, uh, how, you know, the machinations of this system are so harmful to so many people. And so, you know, it, it I think just goes to show again how uh, a lot of these different problems as ever uh, connect uh, race and class and all these different things in terms of how they unfold. And they just point to a fundamental uh, truth about this country and this system and that capitalism and white supremacy are so deeply intertwined. And in fact, I would argue are inextricably linked. They cannot really be separated from each other if you're going to really understand why we continue to see these uh, uh, problems that we have and that uh, uh, the systemic root of them is Ultimately, where uh, any real effort to address the problem has to begin. And if that isn't where it starts, well, then it's just going to be something else uh, uh, painted around the corners uh, that don't really solve the problem. Uh, And as such, uh, uh, Christine, uh, that puts us in a position to where we're basically waiting around uh, for the next disaster to happen because, you know, we have folks that are literally playing around with our lives as things and conditions only grow worse. Yeah, I definitely agree. And and again, they they are playing with our lives um, for for profit. And, and and so you know we are pawns in the game um, for for some people. And I strongly believe that you know if we continue to walk this path without fighting and without that resistance, uh, we won't have a world to pass down to our children. Or the world that we do pass down to our children uh, will not have the the life saving capabilities that we need uh, for future generations. And so I think it's something that uh, we definitely um, need to to coalesce around. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about how and I think it's great that so many young people, you know, have gotten involved in the climate movement uh, up until this point. I remember uh, a little earlier this year, there was some kind of climate conference or meeting that was happening in Europe. And it was, you know, mostly young people that were out there, you know, protesting and chanting and making the point that, you know, the system is the problem and that there, you know, is a future, in fact, worth fighting for. And that is something that I think we always have to bear in mind whether we're talking about um, climate change or uh, worker exploitation or racist police terror, all these sorts of things. I mean, we're, we're in a moment right now where it just feels like every possible thing is going wrong. I mean, we've got two pandemics that are going on at the same time, neither one of them really being taken seriously by this government, the most powerful and wealthy one on earth. Um, I talk all the time about the economic situation, about how people increasingly just are not able to afford to live here in the United States with the rising prices and all those sorts of things. I mean, it's so easy or it can be so easy to be given over to despair and feel like there's no point 
and fighting. But we always have to remember, just like these young people tell us, there is a future that's worth fighting for, but it's only worth it if we're willing to fight for it. If we dare to struggle, then we dare to win. And if we do not dare to struggle, then we are literally conceding that future to the same ruling class elements that are responsible for things being so bad right now. So which is it going to be? Are we going to forfeit the future? Are we going to to, to forfeit a, a earth that's inhabitable uh, for human beings that future generations yet unborn deserve? Are we going to give that up? Or are we going to take up our uh, historic duty to fight those elements and that class and these systems? that are against humanity and that are against the interest of people and that are built and designed to keep people from the bare necessities of life, including an inhabitable planet. And so as time goes on, I mean, it's really going to become clear and clear, I think, to people that um, it's going to be one thing or the other. And they're really going to have to decide uh, what side that they're on, because I would argue that even a decision to be inactive, to say, well, I whatever, I just throw up my hands and I'll stay home. I would argue that you are passively actually helping uh, uh, the ruling class in this project because you are not active in the fight against it. And this is the way that I think we have to really continue to think about these things. And I'm not saying that, you know, just to be extreme or, or doctrinaire or anything like that. I'm saying that because conditions are just that extreme. And if uh, something doesn't change fairly soon, it will only get worse. But that is precisely why we have to organize this militant independent movement. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. See, want to thank Christine Hendricks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.